keep your scripture copy of the scriptures open in hand, turn to the Old Testament <clears throat> prophet Daniel. We'll continue this morning in the book of Daniel. <clears throat> starting in verse 1, and just reading the first seven verses this morning. Uh, but before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading, preaching, and reception of that word. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you again as we come, and we thank you that you have exalted our Lord Jesus as our Prince and as the Savior. And as we continue to come before him, we thank you that he continues to speak to his people through his word. When we do so, we remember that he has come to preach peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. And we pray that as through your written word and by the voice of a human person, our Lord Jesus Christ, again comes to be our preacher and our teacher and our Lord and as our Savior. And we pray that we may become more and more conscious of his accent, of his voice as he calls his sheep by name. We may recognize that it is Christ himself who speaks to us and that he knows all things and that he has much to teach us for we have much to learn. And most of all, Lord, that he wants to meet with us and work upon us and then through us and in us for his glory. And so with joy and faith, we come to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, and say, speak, for your servants are listening. And this we pray for your glory and our blessing in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And Amen. Daniel chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Your full attention, please, now. This is the word of our God. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing upon it now. <clears throat> well, in one sense, it's very hard for most of us uh, to imagine a life um, where we are taken away and removed from our homeland, removed from all that we know and are familiar with, from our homes, <clears throat> uh, and all that is taken down or taken away. It seems so foreign and far from our lives in our day for us. But it wasn't that long ago that very many people knew this reality. Right? Perhaps you know something of this in your family, um, if you have uh, family members who are immigrants in another country. 
This was a reality for many, uh, indeed. In fact, my uh, Mrs. Garbarino's grandmother experienced this very thing uh, from the time she was a little girl in Latvia under Russian control. And then later, they were relocated to Germany, taken from the land to Germany, uh, and then coming to America, another foreign land. And she'd tell us about these things uh, while she was here with us. But the people of Latvia knew precisely what it was to grow up under a repressive regime. regime right? A pastor acquaintance of mine said this of Latvia. After having a brief spell of independence between the two world wars, their small country was annexed by Russians in 1940 and spent most of the next 50 years under alien rule until they were finally able to regain their freedom in 1991. And he says rightly, it was a time of terror and intense suffering for all Latvians, and especially for the church. As the world was overrun with enemies, their world was overrun with enemies who were determined to stamp them out, to stamp out their culture, their language, their identity, their religion. Anyone who was a potential leader got it worst. He says they were either executed or exiled to some distant part of the Soviet empire. He goes on to say, can you imagine what it would have been like to be exiled from home, from your home to a foreign city, to be alone and scared and a long way from anything that you knew. How would you cope, he asked, in such a setting, hostile setting? What truths would you cling to? Or would you simply, would you remain faithful to your former identity? Or would you simply assimilate into your new surroundings? And like I said, that puts it pretty accurately, the situation that was for so many during that time. And the truth be told, though, though this is foreign to us and seems so long ago and distant, even for us, this isn't completely foreign. Right? We usually don't live under the extreme hostility and violence that a country like Latvia did. But the fact remains that we are exiles here on earth. We are citizens of heaven, and therefore we're exiles here. We have a dual citizenship. Uh, and so we live as aliens and strangers in a land not our own. Right? We live under the constant hostility, the constant reality of the world's hostility towards the people of God. And that hostility comes, as you know, in many, many ways, <clears throat> and it is unyielding. We feel this constant pressure to be like the world, to take on the standards and values of the world that is not ours, to fit into this world. We feel the pressure all around us, especially younger people, to look and sound like the world in our clothes, with our language, Right, Our ideas, our thinking, our worldviews are challenged. In the world's icky, gross gossip and humor and the abandonment of morality is just a, a given. It's an expected for everyone in order to fit in, to have friends, to get promoted even at work. And so we're under the constant pressure, whether covertly or overtly, to go with the flow of the world, even though it is completely contrary and opposite to the Word of God. And at every point... We are faced with the easy choice of being more like the world or the difficult stand to be faithful to God, even when that means standing against the world in which we remain sojourners and exiles. Well, this morning we return to Daniel the prophet. <clears throat> and remember that this book is divided, divided into two halves, right? Verses one, I'm sorry, chapters one to six and then seven to twelve. The first half is the life of faith in exile. The second half deals with the hope of faith in exile. I mentioned this last week, um, but the book is also divided into two languages. I don't know how, how many of you were aware of that. It's written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. They're related languages, but they're not the same. 
Um, a Hebrew speaker would not be able to understand exactly everything they heard from an Aramaic speaker. Right? It's kind of like uh, if you had a Dutch a, a person who was a German speaker hearing Dutch or a Spanish speaker listening to a Portuguese speaker. Right? They might figure out some of it, kind of, but not fully. Especially if they were talking quickly, uh, they really couldn't make it out. They're related language. But we see in the book of Daniel, it begins with Hebrew, and then it has this interior portion that's in Aramaic, and then it ends with Hebrew. Right? Why is that? Why is that important? Well, the answer is this, is that Hebrew was the language of the people of God. Right? It was the language of, that God used for nearly all of the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, there's 23, over 23,000 verses uh, in the Old Testament. Only 269 of them are in Aramaic, a very small section. Hebrew was the language of the Jews. Aramaic, however, at the time was the international language of the day. It was the language of diplomacy to the known world, right? Aramaic was like, uh, some of you may know uh, Koine Greek, right? After Alexander the Great, the Great came and Greek spreads all over the place, right? You may have heard of the Hellenization of the, the known world. Right? And there was this common Greek, Koine Greek, and that became the international language of the day that everyone spoke. Well, before that, Aramaic was that language, right? the international language. Similar also to the way English is kind of the international language of our day. Um, wherever you travel, you're probably going to run into somebody that knows some English that can help you out, right? unless it's a very remote place. But the Aramaic portions are written with a kind of international appeal for all the nations to observe and to hear. In those portions are written in the international language of diplomacy, Aramaic, right? And so then at the beginning, we look at Daniel. In the beginning and the end of Daniel, those portions are in Hebrew, and there's these portions, uh, those portions are specifically designed for the people of God, right? And so Daniel breaks apart like this, right? You've got those, the first section, uh, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 4, it talks about uh, Hebrew national history, so to speak, right? And then you've got 2.4 to 7.28 is Aramaic, international history. And then in eight, chapters 8 to 12, we have again Hebrew international history. And this fits with what we see in the other, those other few places of Aramaic uh, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, there are two words in Genesis. There's one verse in Jeremiah. There's this interior section of uh, Daniel that we're going to get into um, in a couple weeks. And then there's this, um, there are two sections in Ezra, right? Ezra. And, and the, the section in Ezra is this, this part where they're, uh, they're writing copies of letters back and forth to one another. So they're in Aramaic, right? International language. Um, the Aramaic in Genesis, this is that incident you may remember when there's this mound of stones and Jacob gives it a Hebrew name and then Laban gives it, Laban gives it the same name but in Aramaic. Right? It's Genesis uh, 31 47. And then very interestingly, Jeremiah 10, it's there that we have this uh, uh, what's referred to as this oracle against the four nations, right? And so that's what that they would be international, right? So it's in Aramaic. <clears throat> and listen to how this works out. This is pretty interesting. Um, Jeremiah 10.10, 10, right? This part's in Hebrew. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then to the nations, he says this. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens, right? And that's the Aramaic portion because it's to the nations, right? This oracle of uh, against the four nations. And so it's an address specifically directed towards them, towards the nations. So we get to Daniel 
And he's in this international context, right? What is he? He's kind of a diplomat in the king's court he ends up being. He's trained in, in uh, Babylon for that reason. Uh, and he learns to use the language of diplomacy, the international language of that day, right? That's pretty amazing when we think about that. It's uh, God is sovereign, right, brothers and sisters? He's a sovereign God. He controls as he sees fit. Even he orders languages, right? And we see in this testimony of that sovereign God and or, of God's sovereignty and order and the proclamation also of a unified, ordered, divinely inspired and preserved word. And that's incredible. And I would contend that we would do well to never grow dull of, of, of seeing the wonder of God's word in all of its perfections, <clears throat> right? It is clear, it is authoritative, it is inspired, it is infallible, it is necessary, it is sufficient, right? And it's been preserved for the people of God, right? It's for us. We're the people of the book. Uh, it's use an old phrase. And all of it, old and new, is ours. All of it. It's awesome indeed. And I hope that that uh, would indeed warm your heart as you think about that. Um, so we see in this book, Daniel, uh, men who are faithful to the Lord. Faithful to the Lord. Life and hope of faith in exile. <clears throat> but the main point on display in Daniel, in this chapter particularly, is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness, right? Particularly in chapter 1, as I said, God's faithfulness to Daniel and his friends as they are exiled, exempted, and exalted. Right? That's kind of the way this chapter breaks down. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll just get to that first section. Exiled, so let's look at that. <clears throat> Here we see God's faithfulness as his, pro as his uh, people are exiled. And to live a life of faith in exile... It's important for us to know this, right? To know the faithfulness of God as we live a life of faith in exile that we're in as well. And here's the thing that we see here in this first part of Daniel, Daniel 1. <laughs> to do this and to know this faithfulness of God, even as in this chapter, when that faithfulness is the faithfulness of judgment, right? The faithfulness of judgment. We read from Kings, uh, 2 Kings 20 for this reason, because it was that the specific prophecy of Isaiah Right, that spoke about this context of Daniel uh, in exile that we that we're reading about. Judah's exile from the land um, was not just an exile of accident or happenstance or even a result of ba uh, Babylon's ambition. Daniel one verse two makes it pretty clear that the exile came upon Judah because the Lord handed King Jehoiakim over to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Right, the Lord handed. Him over, <clears throat> and so God gave His people into their hand, into the hand of, of their enemies. And at the very beginning of their history, you'll remember the history of Israel. The Lord warned them of the matter-of-fact circumstances of their sins that would come. Right, we see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That time, remember, God made a covenant with the people of Israel, and He promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Right, Leviticus twenty-six, probably the best, uh, the easiest place to see this. It was blessing, blessing, blessing if you're obedient. Blessing in your family, with your animals, in your crops, in the fields, uh, etc. For keeping covenant with God. But it was curses galore. Bad news for breaking that covenant. Panic, wasting disease, fever, headache, no crops, no food. They would be prey for their enemies if they violated the covenant. And finally, if that disobedience and that sin continued... What would be their, their lot? Exile from the land and to waste away. 
And the way of Israel, we know our Old Testament, unfolded exactly in that curses category, right? The curses side of the covenant. But Daniel and his friends being dragged off to exile wasn't just the fulfillment of that covenant curse that we read about in Leviticus 26. Right? Listen again to the prequel verse of the book of Daniel, right? Second <clears throat> uh, Kings 20, starting verse 16 says this, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 17, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And then significantly, verse 18, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And it's this specific word of judgment that is fulfilled in these opening verses of the book of Daniel. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came to Jerusalem and he took treasures from the temple of God and put them in the temple of the house of his own God. And he took some of the royal family and the nobility, right, we read, the descendants of Hezekiah, and he put them under the charge of the chief of the court officials or eunuchs. Uh, right? it's, there's some disagreement about how to translate that word, but that's what they were, the court officials. And God's judgment upon the line of Hezekiah and has been faithfully carried out, just as Isaiah had said. Again, it's hard to fathom this judgment from the Lord. But we must see also, right? We must see also, and we see this in the text, we'll look at it more closely next week, the encouragement and hope that came in knowing that this judgment came from the Lord, right? The encouragement and hope. Their future wasn't in the hands of Babylon or their false gods. Their future was in the sovereign, good, and faithful hands of the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, and for us, brothers and sisters, it's the same thing, right? We must always remember that as well, that in the hardest of times that we go through, when everything seems out of control, we have to remember this. Because oftentimes, frankly, lots of times, if not most of the time, our future and our stability seems to be firmly in the hands of those who are hostile and against us, or the forces of wickedness. But all of our experiences and all of our encounters, big and small, are firmly where? in the hands of our sovereign, great, and good God. And that's an incredible encouragement. And that gives us incredible hope in our life in exile here in this land. These young men, you see, are taken and given over to this intense re-education, right? As they're carried off to Babylon, and they're re-educated, so to speak, at Babylon Theological Seminary, right? They're given new names, new languages to use. Everything is different, and all of these things that they're reprogrammed with, they invoke the gods and myths of the Babylonians, right? To what? To replace and displace the culture and the scriptures of God's people, right? Verse 4 says, the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, right? There's this new source of wisdom and worldview that they're given. It's foisted upon them. Their food and drink were to be supplied by the king, right? This is more reprogramming. Why is that? This would get them used to living in dependence upon their new masters. That's where we go for food. Right? Their identity was to be completely changed. Their old identity was to be destroyed and done away with. It's reprogramming, right? Mentally, intellectually, physically, spiritually. And it's the same tact that we see the world and the enemy uses today. 
Right? We can read about these very kinds of things throughout history. But it's what we see when we are seduced by the world and the flesh and the devil of thinking little of Christ and thinking less of Christ. When we're led to believe that our contentment and our blessings and our joys comes from anything other than Christ. When we're led to believe that we can flirt a little with the, with the world and its ways without being polluted. Right? Daniel and his four friends certainly resisted that reprogramming. Right? And at the same time, they lived as dual citizens in the land that God had placed them in without compromising who they were, who they truly were. Right? Consider for a moment the names that they're given, the names that were changed. Uh, Daniel, right? they're Hebrew names. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means the Lord is a helper. And these are the, and so they're the men named these things, and they're reassigned new pagan Babylonian names: Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And all of these names mean something as well, and they're all related to the false gods of Babylon. As dual citizens, they might have answered to those new names, but that's not who they were, right? And we see this throughout. Daniel. They maintained who they were and kept those their real names, their Hebrew names. And we see this again. They're referred to by these names. They preserved those names amongst themselves as a marker of who they really were. They lived with dual names to, as a reminder of their dual identities. And most importantly, as a reminder of their true nature of the true God. And we, brothers and sisters, as exiles, must do the same thing, right? We, we, we need opportunities to maintain and to preserve and celebrate who we truly are in this world that's not our own. How can we do so, right? How can we maintain who we are in encouragement and in hope until we reach our new home? As citizens of heaven, we need to take every opportunity that we can, every chance that we get to gather with fellow exiles and remind one another of home. Right? We, we can't preserve our heavenly identity on our own. On our own, all the hostility and weight of the world will inevitably crush us and shape us into its mold. But together, we help each other along and keep the memory of heaven strong right? in our minds and in our hearts. We do this by reminding each other of who we are and our true citizenship when we meet for study, when we meet for worship week after week. We are forgetful people. We're a weak people. We're foolish people, right? And when we come together, we talk of our true homeland and remind one another of glory, of heaven. And that's also why it's important what we do when we worship together, right? Because the primary thing, and you see distortions of this all over the place, the primary, the thing that's primary uh, is not simply to be, to be equipped for more effective lives here on earth, right? That might be an out, uh, something that flows out of our lives. But the primary thing is to be reminded of who we are, united to Jesus, right? United to Christ. And because of that, because of, uh, of that radical, glorious reality, we are reminded what? As well of the heavenly realities that truly divine, define who we are. And that flows out of us, right? 
We live, therefore, if that's the case, the ethic of our true homeland, even while here in exile in this land. We don't just come to learn practical steps, right? A list of points, how to be better spouses or parents or employees. Because when we're appointed to Christ and our true home and our identity in Christ and his people uh, are healthy and growing, we will necessarily be transformed in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, etc., in every capacity of life. Because in the kingdom to which we belong, these things are done differently than they are in this world. The primary focus of our coming together as the church is to fix our our eyes together on our Savior and King Jesus, right? And of the kingdom of heaven, right? Our true home, which awaits us, where we will dwell with him in worship for all of eternity, for all of eternity. Oh, the glory, right? How has God ordered that this all take place? How is this done? Well, it's done when the signs of the kingdom are on display in our worship services, right? Through the preaching of the word, through the celebration of the sacraments. As the word is preached, a heavenly wisdom is proclaimed that is opposite of the wisdom of this world around us. In baptism, the sign of heavenly citizenship is placed upon us and our children, where our true citizenship lies. In the supper, we eat our native food, as one uh, man has put it. We eat our native food, reminding one another the extreme cost at which our citizenship was bought by Christ and of the ultimate feast that awaits us at home, which we'll share with him for eternity. All of these things, right? All of these things help us to preserve and remember our true identity. We'll get more into chapter one and the rest of this uh, outline next week. But for now, let us remember, brothers and sisters, these things we find in Daniel for our lives in exile as we wait in hope. Let us place our trust, even and especially in this hostile world, in our sovereign Lord who loves us and gave his life for us. Let us fight like the warriors that we are called to be in the strength of Christ's might against the influence and pollution of this world. Let us not neglect coming together and doing the things of our true home and, and, and reminding each other through and by them of who we truly are. If you are united to Christ by faith, dear Christian, this is your story. This is true of you. He is your Redeemer and your Lord. His kingdom is your kingdom. And He will bring you without fail through this exiled life and into that kingdom to dwell forever. God, uh, with God as your Father, as your God, and you as His people. And so we may we go back, dear Christian, into the world with the love of Jesus, loving them and telling of the one in whom is salvation and peace and rest and life alone. Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and love towards us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength for the battle that is before us in this life. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us um, a measure of wisdom, a measure of uh, fortitude against the pollutions of this world, Lord. Help us to lead our lives mostly with the love of Christ, uh, Father. Uh, We pray that you would use us in that capacity, that we would invite others, we would tell others of the glories of the gospel. 
and the rest and refreshing waters that are available uh, for all that come to him in faith. So we pray that you would bless us now and be with us uh, until we can meet again. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.